Have you ever heard the question, why does God allow bad things to happen? Today we'll answer this question by answering the question underneath the question, which is, is God really good? Hello everyone and welcome to Keith Crosby Out of My Mind. This is podcast 077, podcast 77, where we have a biblical conversation about the crazy world in which we live. So join us over the next 20 minutes or so as we provide you a bird's eye view perspective on some issue confronting the culture, the church, and you as we apply God's word to make sense of it all. And at the end of the podcast, we'll provide additional resources just in case you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. In the meantime, let's get started. All right. So is God really good? The question underneath the question, it really, I don't know, as a Christian, I feel like maybe it's a question that we shouldn't really ask. Well, I understand what you mean, Mark, but to be honest, it's a question that many Christians ask at some point in their Christian life or in their life in general before or after coming to Christ. That question showed up in the Ask Me Anything Sunday Q&A that we had just a few weeks ago. It's a serious question. It's serious in its implications and a question that challenges so many believers as they struggle to make sense of their existence in this fallen broken, hurting, and alien world. And it's connected to a question, why does God allow suffering, as well as the question, why does God allow sin? Why did God allow sin? And implicit in these questions is the question that we're really talking about today, is God really and truly good? Now, often such questions come from a place of pain and heartache and suffering, and often, but not always, they come from people who are newer to the faith. Yeah, I think I definitely have experienced that, especially with students. They kind of come with that question of, you know, what is what is God really doing and, and why? Uh, and I think that's really what it is. It's, it's a simpler form of the question. It's why. Why do all of these things happen? Well, you know, Mark, it sounds like you're waxing a little philosophical there. Well, maybe a little bit, but I think what it comes from is just as we look at the world, we are forced, and I think especially, you know, as I talked about with the students, they're forced to kind of look and ask some of those existential questions. Yeah, and, and, I, and I was just kind of horsing around a little bit. You're right. To some degree, uh, this is an existential question, a philosophical question, and actually, it's a theological question, and that really brings us back to our larger discussion what is God like? And this is what is God like part two. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. And I, I really think, you know, it goes, for me, it kind of goes back to that beginning question of, you know, is it really good to ask such questions? As we sit and we ponder some of these these questions of life and, and of who God is, I think, especially as Christians, we feel like, man, I shouldn't really ask questions like that. Well, I think there are boundaries, perhaps, and I think it all depends. It depends on what is at the root of such questions. Okay, so what do you mean by that? What are you, what are you trying to get at when you ask, what's at the root of these questions? Well, again, we only have 20 minutes, and realizing we only have 20 minutes, there are positive sides to such questions, and I would say that it's, there are negative sides to such questions. A positive side always involves growth and repentance. Good people, saved people, are trying to understand their world and their God. They may find themselves in a circumstance that at this stage in their Christian walk, they don't seem to have a category for, like the loss of a child or a natural disaster or a school shooting. Uh, let me just 
walk this back a little bit to something more distantly removed in the past. Years ago, in the fall of 2001, there was a broadcast on CNN called Where Was God on September 11th? And they had a number of pastors and uh, clergy, if you want to call them that, from other religions uh, wrestling with the same question together and with this kind of uh, panel discussion. Here was a tragedy of gigantic proportions where thousands of innocent people were died, where a nation was traumatized, and a world was about to be thrown into some kind of war. And people responded, or reacted is a better word, I guess, in one of two ways. They either sought God because of September 11th or rejected him. And while posing the question is a legitimate act, why do these things happen, motive matters. Okay, so what do you mean by motive matters? I think that's a really important thing to to describe. And I think ultimately maybe what you're trying to get at here is is there's a heart question in there. That's right, Mark. That's that's a great observation. Some people ask such a question in a quest to disbelieve the knowable God, to disconnect from him, to deny his existence. As we read about before, and we've read this psalm many, many times, Psalm 19, While the heavens are proclaiming the glory of God and day-to-day pours forth speech, there are those who seek to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness because while God has made himself knowable to them and apparent to them, discoverable and known to the human race, there are those who really don't want God. They want some kind of autonomy and they allow their hearts to be darkened and they will choose to believe in anything or anyone else other than God. And so they're looking for a way out. Uh, Some maybe have grown up in Christian homes with Christian siblings and parents and have learned to speak the lingo of Christianity but eventually they don't get it. They They grow tired of it. They haven't embraced Christ for one reason or another, and eventually they just get tired of playing the game, and so they begin to question everything. They're not asking a sincere question. They're just asking a question. They're seeking an occasion to walk away from, to deny the existence of God. And so the question doesn't come from the right place, but it comes preloaded with an agenda. And the basis for the question isn't to understand the existence of God, but to impeach God and his word so that they don't have to deal with him. After all, think of the first question that you read in the whole Bible and who asked it. Yeah, I mean, that's the precursor of the world that we live in now. And it's that question that Satan asked, that the serpent uh, asked Eve, and it was, did God really say? That's right. Now, he asked the question, but he knew the answer. It's not that he didn't know the answer. He had a motive. He had an aim. He had an agenda. He had an objective. Yeah, I mean, you know, the devil used that question to create doubt in Eve and implied something bad about God's character, that he basically uh, wanted to keep things from us. God wasn't really good. He was hiding something from us. And Satan wanted to place, place that doubt in Eve that God was holding something back, that there was something better out there, but God wasn't giving it to them. And he goes on to say, you know, well, there's no harm that's going to come to you. Well, surely you will not you will not die if you eat from this tree. God knows that if you take it, you're going to be like him, and that's what he's trying to keep you from. He wants you to not be like him. He wants you to not know the difference between good and evil, when really, I think the whole time, that was just Satan deceiving Eve, saying, hey, you can be God of your own life. You can be equal with God, and that's the big lie. Right. Well, And so motive has something to do with the denial of God in terms of God's character, or God's righteousness, or God's judgment, or his authority. And I think we see this. If we, if we turn in the Bible to Genesis 3 and read verses 1 through 8, you can kind of see this tragedy play out. 
the questioning of God, the doubting of God. Yeah, so Genesis 3, uh, this is 3, 1 through 8. It says this, it says, He said to the woman, so he, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. So Mark, when we look at that narrative there, that historical account, what was the basis for Eve's decision? You see that in verse 6. Read that for us. Yeah, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. The basis seems to be her experience. Her, her limited human perspective says, this is good, and I want it, and why should I not be like God? Exactly. She was relying on her experience. She wasn't relying on the word of God. And did she sin in a vacuum or did she take others with her? Because this is important with these types of questions. Yeah, and I, I think that's just quintessential to the whole thing is she wasn't alone. It says that she gave to her husband and he ate. She was right there the whole time. It wasn't like Adam was, was off doing something else. He was right next to her the entire Collateral time. Collateral damage. I don't want us to lose track here, but I think there's some lessons we can learn from this. So what are some of those lessons that we should take away from this? Well, it's like this. Sometimes when people ask the question, in whatever form it takes, is God really good? It's not asked from ignorance. There's a darker motive. Maybe it's even an unconscious motive, but most of the time it is a conscious motive. People are questioning God's character, his decision process, or even his competency in order to justify or rationalize, is a better word, their rejection of God. And Satan is trying to, for a lack of a better descriptive term, deconstruct Eve's budding experiential faith. Eve, who at this time isn't necessarily a Christ follower, was willing to believe a lie to gain her own ill-conceived concept of freedom and autonomy, and she was willing to incite others to rebel like her husband. And that's why I say collateral damage. And I, I don't want to get into an additional discussion, but there are questions here, and motives have real and eternal consequences. Motives and perspectives matter. And she was coming at this from the wrong perspective with the wrong motive. Okay, so maybe frame that up a little bit more in, in an example from today of, you know, what are you saying with this this idea of motives? Well, there are times when God's goodness and character are questioned because of a poor perspective or a poor understanding of God. There are times where somebody is looking to deconvert. That's a misnomer because they were never converted to start with because they really don't want to be accountable or submit to God, and they want an excuse not to believe. And admittedly, they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, but like Satan, they know that God is. So they imply that he's a bad God, that he, uh, they, they, do, they say what they do, they ask what they ask to create a smokescreen to justify their positions. And then there are those who are just newer believers who are trying to figure it out. But many, many times, 
it's an indication of what's going on in their soul and a rebellion against God. Yeah, and I think the key there is you're saying that it's not everyone who's asking these questions that has bad motives, but it's definitely something to check and see what's at the heart of those motives. Exactly, Mark. I mean, Satan definitely was sinister, right? Eve was foolish. We read about that in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, that she was deceived and fell into great transgressions. But her, her problem was, and the problem with many people, with all people really who ask that question, with anyone who asks that question, is that they lack perspective. I mean, sin is always sin. Whether you are a new believer and you question God's goodness or whether you are somebody who grew up in a Christian family and have played along and now you're just tired of it and so you're going to find a reason to reject the faith. The bottom line is your problem is a matter of perspective as well as sense. Satan put a lie out there and Eve uncritically took the bait and said, based on her years of experience... Wait, what do you mean by years of experience? I'm pretty sure she was like... A few days old at this point, right? That's my point. That's my point. You're 100% right. She had no perspective from which to make this decision critically or wisely. So she began from the wrong starting point for a number of reasons. First, she trusted in her five senses rather than God's word. We call that putting experience over scripture. And, and what she also did is she judged the infinite God in finite human terms. Now, some suggest that she was poorly taught by her husband. That, that means that Adam didn't pass on the teaching as prescribed, and that's why she said, even if we touch it, we'll die. Others would suggest that she chose ambition and personal desires over God and God's word. I'm open enough to say both, but here's the deal. She lacked the bigger, larger perspective, and so do people today. So what I am saying is this. As you are inclined or tempted to see yourself forced to ask the question, which presumes failure on God's part, why are things like they are? Ask yourself, why am I really asking this question? Do I realize that I'm passing judgment on God? Or do I realize that I am presupposing that God does not have good, moral, righteous, and perfect reasons for everything that he does? As the recipient of his grace, as a sinner who has received pardon for his or her sin, I have received from God better than I deserve. Am I in a position, therefore, to question God's decisions, including my pardon and the grace that he, and forgiveness that he's shown me? You know, it's interesting, Mark. People will ask these questions, why did God do this? Why did God do this? But they never ask, why did God save me? You know, John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. People are happy not to, not to question that decision because so few people read their Bibles and really understand God. So few people approach the throne of grace with an appreciation for God's nature and what God is like. And so few people pray as Moses prayed, show me your glory. So few people consider such things as to inquire, what is God really like? Yeah, and I, I think that's the big question, right? God saves us. God performs these miracles, and we're not so concerned with that, but we are concerned with all of these other aspects of, of who God is, and we ask these questions, what is God like? And, uh, and you know, I'm assuming that this is all really just the introduction to that question, or really the introduction to the answer to that question, what is God like? Well, yeah, this is part two of a previous podcast, What Is God Like? And so it is sort of the introduction. So in the time that we have left, let's confine the discussion to the goodness of God. God is good. In Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, he writes, The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Consider what Grudem has so succinctly and forcefully or cogently said. The goodness of God means that God is the standard for good. 
So therefore, anything that God does is good, and anything that God does, we should applaud, approve of, and be thankful for. I mean, remember what Jesus said in Luke 18, 19, no one is good but God alone. Let me just read that verse, uh, Luke 18, 18 and 19. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, and listen to this, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. God is good. God embodies all that is good. And therefore, we have to be really careful. I mean, look at the Psalms. In Psalm 103, verses 1 through 4, we read this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Like Jesus said, the psalmist says in Psalm 100, verse 5, the Lord is good. And we read elsewhere in Psalms 106 and 107, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Or in Psalm 34, 8, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is good, Mark. And to, to question his integrity is to imply otherwise. Yeah, I can hear all that. And, I, and really, I think that there's a question that's asked, I think, especially of unbelievers, but also of, I think, new believers um, that don't really have, because I think what you're, you're keying in on here is, is really this robust Christian worldview or view of who God is. And I think when you don't have a really clear perspective of who God is, you, you'll ask questions like this, right? You'll ask, you know, how can you say that God is good if he allows injustice and suffering? Um, you know, isn't isn't that the thing that makes people so mad at God is that there's been some injustice, some suffering that's happened in their life. And so what do you say to those people who who either have an incomplete understanding or really just no understanding of the goodness of God and what it actually means? I don't know if it's what I say to them, but what I say about them sometimes. People do get mad with God in the Bible, like David in the Psalms. You know, he always starts out, Lord, where are you? Why are you doing this to me? But he always repents. And Job got mad at God and doubted God's decision making. You know, he, he was righteous in his own sight, and he, he thought he didn't deserve any of the things that happened to him. And God spoke to Job about Job's loss of perspective and about Job's limited understanding. And what was Job's response? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Job's response was really what I hope that my response would be as I question and in everybody else's, right? It's just, I repent in dust and ashes. You are God. That's right. Now, from Job's perspective, a God allowed him to suffer too much hardship, and he felt that was undeserved or unjust. But God had reasons for everything that happened to Job, and that reason is for us. When you read the book of Job, you have these changes in venue, where one moment it's God in heaven saying, if you consider my servant Job, the next moment it's Job on earth suffering through and grappling with what's going on and his friends are criticizing him, then you're back up in heaven again. See, Job didn't have that perspective. And Job suffered everything he suffered, kind of like Christ did for us, but in a different sense, to give us perspective, that we don't always see the big picture. And everyone who is mad at God, and everyone who isn't, basically lacks the giant perspective. And so everyone who is mad at God in the Bible eventually repents. I want you to think about that. I mean, Jonah was mad at God, but he didn't repent. But think about why Jonah was mad. He was mad because God was too forgiving. That's different than Job. That's different than uh, David. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good. So when you impugn God's goodness and integrity, consider the assumptions and the leaps that you must take to do that. I mean, think about it. You're assuming that God does not have sufficient moral grounds to act as he does and that you are his moral superior. And you find yourself 
into place saying, did God really need to say this? Not just did he, God say, but did he really need to say this? And you don't want to play God's role, and you don't want to take the role of Satan. I mean, who are we to question the roles that God has assigned to us in redemptive history or the tasks that he's ordained or the decisions that he makes? We're like a goldfish in a goldfish bowl. Let me explain what that means. It means this. When you have a goldfish in a goldfish bowl, this big hand shows up and sprinkles stuff into the bowl. The goldfish swims to the surface and eats the stuff, and he assumes he's got it all figured out. What the goldfish doesn't know is that he's in a bowl, in a room, in a house, in a neighborhood, in a city, in a state, in a country, in this world, in this universe, he doesn't even have any perspective. And so when uh, when you read the book of Job, where Job questions God, and then God steps in and says this, who is this that darkens the counsel of my words without knowledge, without perspective? I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Or when the morning stars sang for joy and the sons of God shouted together. And he says, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory or that you may discern its paths to its home? You know, you were born then, Job, and the number of your days is great. So what he's saying here is, you don't have the perspective. You don't have the full picture. And so we need to get the picture. Let's never be too quick to judge God, to question his character or his goodness or his mercy or his love. Because there is a larger picture that God has ordained, and we are uh, pieces of that puzzle, uh, pieces of that mosaic. God has it all under control, and God is God, and we are not. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like further resources, visit us online at www.gracetoliveradio.org and click the podcast resource button. If you'd like to ask me a question, email me at keith at hillside.org. I'd love to hear from you. Visit us online at www hillside.org worship with us at eight o'clock 9 30 and 11 on sundays and you know what share us with your friends go to your podcast platform whatever it is and write a review it helps us reach more people this is keith crosby with mark stickler saying god bless you and god keep you